Good morning, everyone. My name is Tim Harris, pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church. Welcome. Glad that you are here. Starting a new message series entitled Little Books. Little books. We're going to take a look at those books in the Bible that are so tiny, so T90, that sometimes they absolutely get overlooked. Uh, The book of Jude we'll look at this morning is a book that is rarely ever preached, often not even read. How many of you, be honest, how many of you would say right now you probably think you've read both chapters of the book of Jude in your life? You read them both chapters? (laughs) You lie. There's only one chapter of the book of Jude. I'm just teasing you. It's a little book, only 20. I'm sorry, that was bad. And I'm your pastor. I'm so sorry. There are only 25 verses, one chapter of the book of Jude. You knew you'd read the whole thing. That's what you were telling. You knew you'd read it all. 25 verses. Before we start, let me ask you a, a, an easy question. This is a lowball question. What does the word Bible mean? The word Bible. What's that word mean? You know what the Bible is, I guess, but what does the word mean? It means literally little books. The word Bible means little books. Literally, it's a Greek word that means library. So in my hand, I'm holding a library of little books. They're all little books. Let's be very, very honest. When you talk about the book of Jude, the book of Revelation, the book of Luke, all of these are what we call books, but they're tiny books. In this one book, there are 66 little books, and that's what the word Bible means. I want to emphasize for you this morning as we launch this series that All of the books of the Bible are are little books. I remind you of that because so many of us act like it's such a burden to read the Bible. The Bible is is before me. It's really not that thick of a book, not even the whole thing altogether. But we don't approach the Bible like we approach other things. We don't read it with a lot of enthusiasm. Some of us honestly don't read it at all. But be honest, you don't read it at all. I love to write letters to my wife, I do. Uh, Holidays, especially her birthday or our anniversary, I love to stop and write something. And I write something important. I'll spend hours, maybe days, writing it just exactly perfect for her. And then I give it to her. And when I give her what I've written for her, I like to sit there right while she's reading it and look at her. I want to be with her while she reads it. That's wonderful. That's part of it for me. And while she reads my letter, I read her face. I try to read her face. I'm wondering, you know, is she to the good part yet? Is she reading the sexy part yet? Is she she feeling what I'm feeling? I just love to watch her face. And I watch her face sometimes. Her eyes will fill up with tears. and, And I watch that and I love that. I can't imagine what it would feel like for me if I handed her one of those letters, my words from my heart. If I handed her that and she just folded it up and stuck it away. And she said, you know I don't like to read. You know, it's not about liking to read. It's about loving me, honey. It's about me, the one who wrote the letter. It's not about do you like to read. It's about do you love me. I can't imagine if I handed her the letter and she read one sentence and put it away. And I said, what are you doing, honey? She says, I'm going to read a sentence a day. I may even break this into parts and read it through in a year. No. No, she's not going to do that. She'll miss work if she has to. She's going to read that letter through because she knows that the words are from my heart. She loves me. I I love her. And I'm going to be right there beside her while she reads. I'm saying this so you'll understand. This is what God's word is supposed to be in your life. You're supposed to love all of these little books because you love the author. 
If you love God, it is no chore to read his word. You're going to love to read his word. If you don't love the Bible, you don't love God. It's just that plain. And if you say the Bible's a boring book, you've never read it. You have no idea. The Bible is God's word to us. There are 66 little books, and all of them little. You can read this. I, I know you can. Some of you get a John Grisham novel or a Harry Potter novel and you just sit down and it's, it's a lot thicker than the Bible, but you'll read the whole thing through. You'll wear one of those astronaut diapers so you don't have to get up and go anywhere. You'll just sit there and you'll read that through because you love it. I'm asking you, why don't you love God's word like that? There's something wrong in your heart if you don't know and love God's word like that. They're all little books, but they're not unimportant because they're small. And the book of Jude, which we'll look at today together, is, is very small, very short. It's stuck right in there before the book of Revelation. But this is an incredible word from the Lord. Let's take a look at it together. We're going to read the whole thing, the whole book of the Bible. Uh, it, it's going to be good. The book of Jude. Words are on the screen. My voice is giving out today, so why don't you read with me, and that'll let me rest a bit. I'll interrupt you, as you know uh, I will do as we go along, but let's read the book of Jude together, beginning with verse 1. This letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Okay, I'll interrupt you already. You see what it says? This letter is from Jude, uh, what's the word? Slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Who is Jude? Very interesting. Jude is actually Jesus's brother. Do you know that? You know that Mary was a virgin when she had Jesus, but you know Mary and Joseph got married and they had other children. I guess technically these are half brothers of Jesus, half brothers and sisters. Look at Mark chapter 6, verse 3, is it something like that? The brothers and sisters of Jesus are listed. They're half brothers. We know that Jesus is the Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, but she had other children. And throughout the Gospels, you'll find references to Jesus' brothers. And from everything we can see, they were not believers during Jesus' earthly ministry. Kind of like your brother don't believe in you either. These brothers and sisters were not believers. They were not disciples of Jesus. In some cases, they would actually come and try to get him to come back home and give up the preaching thing. They thought he was crazy. Those kinds of brothers, you've probably had one like that. They weren't believers during his life. But after his resurrection, who could deny who Jesus was? Who could deny that he was who he said he was? And after the resurrection, Jesus' brothers and sisters, from what we know, they became believers. They became believers. They were in the number of those in the upper room at Pentecost, and they received the Holy Spirit, and they went out along with everybody else in the church. The brothers of Jesus became believers. They became servants of Jesus. Interesting, Jude doesn't say, I'm Jesus' brother. I promise you, if I was Jesus' brother, I would have that printed on a t-shirt. I would want everybody to know. But James and Jude, both of whom write books in the New Testament, they don't call themselves brothers of Jesus. They call themselves servants. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James. Let's read on. I'm writing to all who have been called by God the Father, who loves you and keeps you safe. Underline that word keep. Keeps you safe. It's important to Jude. God loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. 
May God give you more and more mercy, peace, and love. Read with me, verse 3. Dear friends, I have been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share. But now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago. For they have denied our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So I want to remind you, though you already know these things, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. In the same way, these people, these people who claim authority from their dreams, live immoral lives, defy authority and scoff at supernatural beings. But even Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. This took place when Michael was arguing with the devil about Moses' body. But, but these people scoff at things they don't understand. Like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instincts tell them, and so they bring about their own destruction. What sorrow awaits them? For they follow in the footsteps of Cain, who killed his brother. Like Balaam, they deceive people for money. Like Korah, they perish in their rebellion. When these people eat with you in your fellowship meals, commemorating the Lord's love, they are like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. They are like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. They're like clouds blowing over the land without giving any rain. Like trees in autumn that are doubly dead for they bear no fruit and they've been pulled up by the roots. They're like wild waves of the sea churning up the foam of their shameful deeds. They're like wandering stars doomed forever to blackest darkness. Enoch, who lived in the seventh generation after Adam, prophesied about these people. He said, listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on the people of the world. He will convict every person of all the ungodly things they have done and for all the insults that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and complainers, living only to satisfy their own desires. They brag loudly about themselves and they flatter others to get what they want. But you, my dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ said. They told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's spirit in them. But you, dear friends, must build each other up. Uh, in the holy faith, pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourselves safe. Underline that. You will keep yourselves safe in God's love. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy still to others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. 
these last two verses, this is awesome, this is beautiful. Now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him who alone is God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. All glory, majesty, power, and authority are his before all time and in the present and beyond all time. Amen. I've been around a while, and I've heard a lot of people give their testimonies, or a lot of people give their story about how they became a Christian, how they came to faith. The interesting, puzzling thing to me is that a lot of those stories will begin with a person saying, I was raised in church. People talking about their testimony, they'll start out by saying, I was raised in church. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up with a Bible reading family, whatever. Often people will say that they grew up in church. But then they'll talk about their whole life, their life of going in the other direction. And then at some point recently, if the story is recent, they'll tell you that they, they heard the gospel and responded, that they, they've become a Christian, they got saved. However you want to explain what, what happened, they at some point later experienced the gospel in a transformational way. I, I love those stories, but there's a part of the story that bothers me. It's the part that says, I grew up in church. It's the person who spent all of those years in church, Sunday after Sunday, often in Sunday school, listening to sermons like this one, listening to preachers for Sunday after Sunday, week after week, year after year, but somehow none of that ever made a difference. Somehow for all the being raised in church and all the sermons they ever heard, they never heard the gospel in a personally transformational way. And that bothers me. I I guess it begs the question, why not? Why is it that people, so many people, can spend a lifetime in church and never hear the gospel in a way that calls a response out of them? I think, honestly, we have to face the possibility that that in churches like ours, churches everywhere, we don't always preach the gospel very well. We preach a lot of stuff, and often... We assume the gospel. I'm looking at a church crowd. Sometimes I probably assume that you know how to get saved. I assume that you know the good news of Jesus. I assume you know all that, so I preach about other stuff. The problem is, year after year of preaching other stuff, I'm not preaching the gospel. And I'm afraid that's what happens in a lot of churches. God help us. In front of our bulletin, every single Sunday, we have our mission statement. Woodburn Baptist Church is a family of Christians that loves and welcomes everyone shares the gospel of Jesus Christ, and on we go. But that's our first task, is it not? To share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything comes down to the gospel. For all of the messages I could preach, there's only one message that I am called and I must preach, and it is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Jude says, I wanted to write you a letter and talk about our salvation. I wanted to talk about other things, but I've got to talk about this one thing. I've got to talk about your need to defend the faith. You've got to fight for the gospel. Because there are folks who've wormed their way into the church, Jude says. They've wormed their way in, and they will wreck you. They will wreck the church. You've got to fight for the gospel. 
So what is the gospel? I mean, honestly, if, if that's what I'm supposed to preach, and by this time it's what you're supposed to have heard, what's supposed to have changed your life, what is it? If I were going to put it in a nutshell, boil it down to, to, to one verse, one thought, I would ask you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Turn. Look at this verse. Underline this verse in your Bible. This is the gospel. This is the only thing I've got to preach. And everything I say must somehow point back to this. This is the message. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. That's the gospel. God made Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin itself. That's what the scripture says. To become a sin offering for us, so that we could be made right with God. That's the gospel. It has to do with the God who loves us, a God who is powerful, a God who is holy. But it also immediately must bring us around to the fact of our sin. The gospel is an answer to our sin. This is the part that falls through the cracks. Maybe this is why we don't preach the gospel enough, because we don't like talking about our sin. But the gospel is about our sin. The fact that we were sinners, the fact that we're still sinners, the fact that in our sin there's nothing that we could do ever to earn a place with God, nothing we could do to make right what is wrong with us before God, absolutely nothing. It is not that you're a bad person that Jesus wants to make good. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you are a dead person in your sin. You're a dead person that God wants to bring alive through Christ. You see, your sin problem is much worse than you think. It goes deeper than you possibly imagine. God knows. That's why God did something only God could do. He took Jesus, who had no sin of his own. Jesus was God-made flesh, who came down born in a human body just like yours and mine. He lived a human life just like yours and mine, except he never sinned. I'm not saying he didn't have any big sins. He didn't have any sin at all. No little sins, no nothing. He never sinned. Always obeyed his parents. Always told the truth. Never lusted in his mind. He never sinned. He who had no sin of his own, God made him to become sin. He took our sin upon himself so that we could be made right with God. That's the gospel. That's the message of Scripture. It is the good news that brings together all Christians, all churches. That is the message that we must fight for. It's the only thing we're worth defending, the gospel. What's that like? What's it like to have all of our sins laid upon him, all of his righteousness given to us? What's that like? It's like Christmas. There's a mom and dad and their three-year-old little boy. It was really the first Christmas that he was old enough to experience and really understand. So th that morning, he got up, little pajama feet running down the hall. He gets to the tree, and there under the tree are all of these presents that he knows are for him. He knows it's all for him. And the three-year-old just stands there <gasps> looking at the presents. Dad, being a good Christian man and also a typical father, wanted to make this a teaching moment. So he said, hold on a minute, son. Wait right there. I want to stop and remind you 
whose birthday it really is. I want to remind you who all of this is really for. It's really all for Jesus. Little boy looked back at the tree with all the presents, and he said, Am I Jesus? <laughs> Do you understand? He knew it was all for him. So if dad's saying it's all for Jesus, I must be Jesus. No, that, that's not it. But, but that's what salvation is like. That's what I want you to see. You don't have any righteousness of your own. You cannot produce a teaspoonful of righteousness. Do you know that? I know that you're better than some people, but you are not all that you pretend to be. I know that about you, and you can just as soon know that about me. I'm, I'm not all I pretend to be. I don't have that goodness in me. Neither do you. I don't care what Oprah says. We're not good inside. We're sinners. Every single one of us, we're separated from God. It is our sin that separates us from God. It is our sin that condemns us to eternity in hell. It is our sin. That's what we got coming to us. But somehow, by God's grace, by the beauty of the gospel, God made him who knew no sin to become sin itself so that we, we could receive the righteousness of God. That's not mine. It's Jesus' righteousness. But when God looks at me, he sees me with his righteousness. That's what it means to become a Christian. That, my friends, is the gospel we defend. But it all starts with you recognizing your sin. I'm a sinner. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian that still sins. That's the hard part. I'm a Christian, and I still sin. I think that's why Jude, in verse 2, he prays for several things for the body of Christ. Notice what he says. He says, I pray that God will give you more and more mercy, peace, and love. He knows that we need more and more mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And Jude is praying for Christians, and he says, I hope you have more and more mercy. Why do I need more and more mercy? Because I got more and more sin. You understand what I'm saying? Are you tracking with me at all? I've got more sin. That's why I need more mercy every single day. I'm a sinner and I still sin. That's what's in my heart. One day I had some some gift money. Most of you know that my wife is an incredible financial manager. And she manages me. And my wife has every dime budgeted. But every now and then, I'll get something that is not on her page yet. It's not on the budget. It's not in the Dave Ramsey envelopes yet. I consider that free money. And so I try to figure out, how am I gonna, what am I going to do with this money? And i got to spend it before she can smell it. Because she can smell it. i got to spend it. I had this money that was kind of a gift. And so I thought... Uh, I'm going to cash this and buy myself something. Some things I wanted at Lowe's. There was also, I thought maybe I could use a new shirt. So that's what I decided. I'm going to cash this check. I'm going to buy a shirt. I also had to make a hospital visit. So I went by the bank. I got the cash in my pocket. That cash just burning a place in my pocket. And I went to the hospital. I was going to buy a shirt after I left the hospital. Here's the thing. In the hospital, I met a family. And I realized that they had some real financial needs. And I had money in my pocket. I hate that. I'll just be honest with you. I mean, I know I'm your pastor and you're thinking that I should think, oh God, thank you. Thank you that I got this money that I can give this family. That's not what went through my head. I'm thinking, why in the world did I not buy that shirt first? <laughs> if I'd have spent that money on the way to the hospital, I'd have a shirt. 
And then I could say, God, I'd love to help this family, but you know, I just, I don't have any money. But no, I had the money in my pocket. And God says, give it to the family. And I hate that. I just hate that moment because, because I hate that that is my wicked heart. I hate that I'm that selfish. I hate that I would keep a secret from my wife. I hate that I would rather spend money on stuff I don't need for myself than help a family in need. I hate that. I hate those moments when God shows me my wicked heart. I'm a sinner. I still sin. I know I'm your pastor. But you need to understand this about me because it's also true for you. This is who we are. We still sin. We need mercy, more and more mercy every single day because there's more sin where that came from. Do you understand what I'm saying? What I want you to realize, what Jude wants you to realize is that rooting out sin, dealing with the sin in your heart is a part of the everyday Christian life. You can never, you must never get cozy or comfortable with your sin. Your sin is why Jesus died. Your sin cost Jesus his blood. You must not, must not, must never become comfortable with your sin. That's why Jesus died. That's what he died to save you from. And at the very moment you begin to cozy up to your sin, you begin sliding away from the Lord. Do you not understand that? Scripture says if we say we have no sin, we lie. We lie. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the everyday Christian life, my friends. You recognize the sin that's in your heart. I see the wickedness that is in me after walking with the Lord now that nearly 35 years. I, I, I know that still there's sin in me. And I despise that. I hate the sin in me. That's why when God reveals my sin to me, my job, my responsibility before God, the gift God gives me is the gift of being able to confess, God, I see that. I despise that. God, take it away from me. Forgive me. And then I turn and I get back on the path that takes me closer to Christ. That's how we live. We try to root out the sin from our life. That's what Jesus does in our life. It's a process we sometimes call sanctification, setting us apart, making us holy, making us to be like Christ. That's what the Christian life is. It's the life of the gospel. And that's why Jude says, there are some people that have wormed their way into the church, and you need to mark them. You need to pay attention to them because you've got to understand that they will wreck your church. They will wreck your life if you listen to them. Who are they? Who are these people Jude's talking about? Well, first off, they're people in the church. So obviously they're presenting themselves as Christians. They're presenting themselves as religious people. But they're ungodly people. They live an immoral life, Jude says. What would attract them to the church? Why would ungodly, immoral people come to church? Because they love grace. That's what Jude says. These people love to talk about God's marvelous grace. And grace is marvelous. That God would give me the righteousness of Christ. That God would forgive and overlook my sin. That's marvelous. That's grace. I don't deserve that. These people love grace, a message of forgiveness, a message of starting over and over and over. They love that message. They love grace. The problem is they love grace and they also love sin. They love grace, 
but they also love sin. They use grace as, as an excuse to live any way they please. They use the message of Christ as a great big license to live any way they choose, follow whatever desires they have. Everything is free now because Jesus is giving it all away. It's called grace, marvelous grace. Jude says these people will wreck you. They will wreck you. Because there's a real contradiction between a person who says that they have the gospel of Christ and yet they're comfortable with sin. Jude says that they actually are denying the lordship of Jesus. Do you see that? Because if Jesus says that something is wrong, and yet you decide to do that anyway, you are denying Jesus' right to order your life to be your Lord. You're setting yourself up as the master of your own life, and that is not the Christian life. I seriously wonder if you're a Christian, if you would possibly think that you can serve Christ and continue to enjoy your sin. The sin in your life is despicable. It is dirty. It is why Christ died. You can't love it. You, you can't. Well, what I'm saying very, very plainly is you cannot take the name of Jesus and then live any way you want. It's not okay that you're living with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. That's not okay. I, I know you wish it were okay. I know lots of people say that it's okay, but Jesus says sex outside of marriage is wrong. It will always be wrong. No matter what you say or no matter how you choose to live, you won't change what Jesus says is sin. It's not okay that some of you are addicted to internet pornography. That's not okay. It may be a secret that nobody knows, but it will wreck you. It is sin. It will contaminate your soul. And if you're comfortable with it, there's something profoundly lost about your heart. A Christian cannot be cozy with sin. But honestly, in church life, we don't meet people who come out and say that. Nobody comes out and says, I'm a Christian, so I can live any way I want. No, actually, with church people, lots of times we talk a lot about sin. And you would think that we take sin very seriously. But let's be honest, the only sin we take seriously is other people's sin. We love to preach about other people's sin. We love to take a strong stand against other people's sin. I got not too long ago. Say, you're the pastor of Women Baptist Church. Whenever somebody asks me that, I should just learn to lie, man. It's never going to be good. You're the pastor of Women Baptist Church. Yes, I am. I'm, I'm the pastor. Y'all have men who are divorced as deacons. Well, we look at that case by case. I try to explain. We look at that case by case, and sometimes we have ordained men who have been divorced. Honestly, we just try to listen to their story. We look for the story of Christ, the story of restoration and redemption, and there are probably divorced men that we would ordain, and some we wouldn't. We take that case by case. Well, I'm never coming back to your church, he said. Okay, don't let the door hit you on the way out. But I said, I want to ask you a question. In the churches that you come from, were there deacons who loved money? What's that got to do with it? So, well, sir... It's in the same passage. It's actually in the same verse that a deacon shouldn't be a lover of money. And, and my goodness, if we stopped ordaining men who loved money, we wouldn't have any deacons. We'd have to ordain dogs and cats. You know what I'm saying? I mean, who's ever seen deacons in a deacon body? Somebody's going to love money, but we've never, ever excluded anybody for loving money. Why is that? Because we love money, but we're not divorced. Understand how that works? 
It is somehow wonderful to point out the sins that we're not guilty of. Wonderful to exclude people on the basis of guidelines that we get to draw up that keep us inside. You know what I'm saying? It's wonderful somehow to take a stand on sins that you're not guilty of. Let's be honest. Be honest. One lady said, you the pastor of Wooden Baptist Church? What Bible you preach out of? I said, usually the New Living Translation. You don't preach in the King James? Well, I sometimes do. I love the King James, but often I preach the New Living Translation. She said, my Bible says, if it ain't King James, it ain't Bible. No, it doesn't. That's what her bumper sticker said. But that's not what the Bible said. Why would she want to fight me over that? Why would church people fight over the version of the Bible? To quote the King James, that makes me want to spew. That makes me want to spew. Why would we fight about that? Paul would say, are they preaching Jesus? Leave them alone. They're preaching Jesus? I don't care if you preach out of the Russian Bible. Preach Jesus. Just preach Jesus. So easy for us, though, to take stands where the Bible doesn't take a stand. To call sin what the Bible doesn't call sin. And then we magically... Strangely, have no problem with the kind of sin that we're all guilty of. I grew up hearing a lot of sermons. This was the 70s. I grew up hearing a lot of sermons about the sin of men having long hair. I heard long sermons against men having long hair. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. My preacher should have spent all of that breath and energy and preached on the sin of racism. Now that would have been good. Because honestly, we all had short hair in that church, but we were all racists. Preach that one, brother. Never happened. Because it's way too easy to take a stand on the sins that you aren't guilty of. To take a stand on other people's sins. That's delicious. But Jude would say, people who do that, they'll wreck your church. They'll wreck you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a word of grace and forgiveness, but the gospel also puts you on a path where you will ruthlessly, ruthlessly eliminate the sin from your own heart. And Jesus would say, spend all your time on the plank in your own eye before you get around to start taking that splinter out of somebody else's eye. In other words, why don't you just concentrate on your own stuff? There is sin enough in my heart. I will never get around to dealing with the sin in your heart. You know what I'm saying? And I'm telling you the truth. Jesus says there are these people that they talk about Jesus. They talk about God's marvelous grace. But they live immoral lives. Stay away from them. Avoid them. Notice that they are not preaching the gospel. Understand the danger. It was prophesied years ago. These people are condemned. They're not truly believers, and they will wreck you. They'll wreck your church. But God wants to keep you, and that's Jude's message. And quickly, as we wrap up, take out a pencil and paper. Four things that Jude says. Four things. Notice how Jude says God will keep you. He begins with that. He ends with that. God keeps you safe in the love of Christ. God keeps you. But there in the middle there toward the end, he says, this is how you keep yourself. It's kind of both at once. God keeps me, but I also have to do some things to keep myself safe in his arms. Four things. Number one. 
remember what Jesus said. Jude says, remember what the apostles have taught, the words that came from Jesus. Remember the gospel. Remember God's word. Remember that. We have a tendency to forget the word of God, a tendency to forget what Jesus actually says. We love to think about what we say and what we think and what anybody else says, but Jude comes back to this is how you'll be kept safe in in the arms of Jesus. You remember the word of God. Remember the Bible in your own life. God, help us. We don't read it. You wait for me to read it to you. God, help you. You're never going to make any progress in your Christian life until you develop a hunger, a love for what God wants to say to you. Remember what Jesus says. Live your life out of his word. Remember Jesus' word. Number two, build each other up. Build each other up. I don't understand why some people cannot get it through their thick heads that the Christian life is not something you do by yourself. It's not a solo affair. It's something you will always need other believers for. That's why you come to church and you come back on Sunday night and Wednesday night and you come every time the door is open because we need each other. I need you. You need me. We can't do it without each other. The world tears us down. The devil tears us down. But we come together to build one another up. We build each other up. Number three, pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jude says. Pray in power. Let that soak in. If I could spy on your prayer life, what would it look like? Probably look kind of like, you know, somebody, I don't know, sleeping. Look like somebody, you know, just with their head down in their hands. I mean, what would I see? Would I see a person praying in power? When you pray, do you feel like you're in touch with power? When we go to the Lord in prayer, we're talking to the God of the universe, the God with all power. I'm saying this is a powerful, powerful thing to pray. And this is how Jude says you pray. So enough of the manby-pamby praying that you do. Enough of the memorized prayers for when you were a kid. Why don't you pray your guts out? Pray in power. Pray till God does something that you never thought you'd see him do. Pray believing. Pray in power. Stop the sleep praying. Stop the little prayers that you only say when you're in trouble. Why don't you pray in power? That's the normal way to pray. That's what prayer is. What you're doing is something else. That's why your life never changes. Power and prayer. What am I on for? This is why I should preach with notes. Am I on for? For? For. Jude says, love sinners. Love sinners, but hate sin. You didn't think that's where he was going to go. I mean, he has said some really harsh things about these people. He said that they're like trees uprooted and fruitless. They're like waves on the sea. They're like stars in the darkness. And then he says, you know, all those people out there, love them. Mercy on them. Do everything you can to bring them back. You've got to love sinners. You've got to love sinners. You know why? Because you are one. And I'm one. I'm a sinner. And I still sin. We've got to love sinners, but we've got to hate sin. There is no such thing as a Christian with a friendly relationship with sin. You've got to hate sin. 
You've probably heard it say that, that, that in God's eye, all sin is the same. All sin is the same. You can't talk about big sins, little sins. It's all sin. I'll disagree a little bit here. I want to tell you right now, this is the, the worst kind of sin. This is the sin above all other sin that I want you to hate with a passion. I want you to develop in your heart a revulsion for this particular kind of sin. All sin may be evil, I agree with that, but here is the sin that you must learn to hate above all other sin. Are you ready? Write this down. The sin that you must hate above all other kinds of sin is your own. Your own. The sin that's in your heart. You've got to learn to despise it. There are people in every church, they've, they've wormed their way in. that They present themselves as Christians. Truly, they're not Christians, Jude would say. They've been condemned from the very beginning. They take the name of Jesus. They love grace. But they also love sin. Jude says, they're going to wreck your church. They'll wreck you. Brothers and sisters, if in your life you say you love Jesus, but you also love your sin, you are heading for disaster. If you love Jesus, you're going to hate sin. And the sin that you'll hate more than any other your own. Pray with me. God, it was our sin. It's always been our sin. Jesus, you had no sin, and yet you became sin for us so that we could be made right with God. This is the good news. This is the gospel that transforms us. This is the gospel that sets our feet on a path toward holiness. Lord Jesus, there are in our midst people who talk a lot about grace but live a lot in their sin. It is a disastrous contradiction. Lord Jesus, I pray today that you would keep us near to you, safe in your arms, and help us to keep ourselves free from the stain and contamination of sin. God, we're sinners. We still sin. Help us to learn to live a life of confession and repentance and everyday grace. Help us, Lord, to love sinners. Help us not to judge others, Lord, on a standard that we wouldn't judge our own selves. Help us, Lord, to love sinners and hate sin, but to hate our own sin the most. Lord Jesus, how we love you how we love to read your word. How difficult it is, Lord, when your word begins to read us. Lord, truly, you interpret our lives by what you say. I pray, Lord, that you would help some of us to have our lives changed, washed clean by your word, by your grace, by the gospel of Jesus. It is truly the only thing there is to preach, Lord. I pray that in this house, it will be the most important thing ever heard. Let them hear today, Lord Jesus, and respond. In Jesus' name, amen.